Good morning. How are we doing? <clears throat> it's good to see y'all. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, so I've missed you guys. Excited to be back uh, with the opportunity to preach God's word this morning. Just want to say thank you to Dale and Eric who did fantastic jobs, uh, and I'm super thankful for faithful brothers in this church and in this city uh, who we can partner with to preach the gospel. Uh, you have a Connect card in your seat, and if you are new here, I would love for you to go ahead and fill that out literally right now. Or if you've been coming and you haven't gotten connected, you haven't let us know uh, who you are, uh, we'd love to follow up with you in your next steps uh, in church, in life, whatever it may be. So please fill that out. You can drop it off on your way out uh, at the welcome table on the lobby or the welcome table that way. Uh, we have a cool gift that we would love to give you, uh, but you have to give us the Connect card in exchange, okay? So uh, please do that. We'd love to get to know you. Another quick thing is our merch for missions is now available online, which is awesome. We're excited about that. And so all of the swag and different things that we do, as you know, we love some swag here at City Light, but it all goes uh, 100% to fund missions and missions work around us. Uh, particularly, we're doing a Christmas in, uh, in July, or now it's August, but a summertime Christmas theme. Uh, you can go ahead and grab a beanie or something and get ready for the winter season. Uh, we would love for you to participate, uh, really to support the work of God through young lives uh, to minister to teen moms. Uh, we have seen over the last year and a half the Lord do some extraordinary things through that. And so if that's a great way for you to partner, I invite you to check it out online or in our lobby. Another final thing for those of you, a uh, small group of you maybe who, who could be interested in this, we are doing something or piloting something called City Light College, uh, which is basically a year of intense Bible training, uh, sort of like seminary type stuff, but for free and without going to class all the time. And so, yes, yes, and everybody said amen. Uh, but it does require a significant amount of work per week and uh, would require some of your time. So if you have the potential to do that, the interest and the time, uh, we're going to go ahead and start that at the end of the month. Uh, we already have a group that we're working towards, but some interest has grown for that. So I thought might as well throw it out to the congregation. Uh, we're not looking for a huge group, just a small group of, of men and women uh, who are available to do that, who have the time to do that and who are interested. So just email me or John this week. I mean this week, uh, if you would like to jump in on that here at the last moment. So the reason I was gone uh, for the last two weeks was I was at a youth camp. Uh, it was an awesome time just being with God's people, being with a bunch of teenagers, doing crazy things, sharing the gospel. Uh, it was a really encouraging time. And so I spent a week in the mountains with a bunch of teenagers who didn't have a phone. Can you imagine that? Like 300 teenagers, no phones anywhere, okay? It was like... It was, the apocalypse was just weird, you know? It's like, what in the world? And they had to learn how to talk again. They had to learn how to walk again. They had to learn how to, they didn't know. They didn't know how to function at all. And so they're used to walking like this. So when you're walking, they just weren't sure what to do with that. Um, having a conversation longer than one minute, they were just really, they were learning, okay? So uh, it was a great time, though. And the Lord really changed a lot of lives. It was a, a, a refreshing reminder of what God can really do in the hardest of hearts uh, when I saw him really change significantly uh, some lives there at camp. Now, one thing that did happen while I was at camp is I had to jump into the pool to save my four-year-old Jude, uh, who jumped in. It said three feet, and he's fine in three feet, but when he jumped in, it was not three feet. Uh, and so, obviously, like any parent, I was right there, so it wasn't that extreme, but I had to jump in right away with my phone in my pocket and everything in my pocket. And uh, safe to say, though, uh, through some prayer and fasting, my phone lives, okay? So we're excited. I want everyone to know that resurrections do happen, okay? And these are possible, and so it is back from the dead. The rice trick did work. It broke my charging unit, but I have a wireless charger now, so that was an easy solution. There's a small black spot on my phone that when I took it to the store, the guy said it's going to spread like the virus, and I was like, that's a really intense thing for you to say right now about my phone. Uh, like, whoa, but I didn't come here for that. Uh, but the black spot hasn't spread either, and my phone is in good working condition, so praise the Lord uh, for his grace in that way. Um, as I was preaching the word of God every day, uh, which we did multiple services every day for a week, it was uh, a wild ride. There was this kid named Ben Say, and I have told some of my team about this already. I'm calling it the Ben Say spirit. This kid, he was in eighth grade, going into ninth grade. He's 13 years old. And I would say, uh, okay, let's open the word of God. And Ben Say, sitting on the front row, would say, let's go! He would just freak out. And then eventually he got everyone else to do it with him. So whenever I would say anything, I could be like, Jesus! And they'd be like, yeah! You know? 
the Word of God, whoa, you know, it was, they got very pumped up about this, Uh, it was very exciting, and, you know, it was a little bit of a joke, but then it turned into a thing over time, Uh, I asked Ben Say if he wanted to come work at City Light, but he's in eighth grade, so he can't do that quite yet, I was like, can you go with me everywhere I go, can you be at home, I open the Bible with my kids, you know, you're like, let's go, Uh, but uh, all joking aside, I was like, listen, I've been telling my team, we need the Ben Say spirit here, okay? We need some Ben Say energy, some Ben Say hype, some excitement for the word of God, okay? Anybody with me this morning? All right, all right, all right. So here's what we're going to do. It went really well in the nine, okay? So it better go well in the 11, all right? I'm going to say we're going to open the word of God, and you're going to scream like a crazy person, let's go, okay? All right? If this makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but welcome to City Light Church. Uh, the uncomfortable becomes normal. Uh, we used to say in the beginning, what you call unusual, the Bible calls normal. And that was my, my tricky way of saying, you better get used to being uncomfortable here. So, uh, okay, I'm going to say we're going to open the word of God, and you're going to scream like a crazy person. Ready? Let's open the word of God. Let's go! All right. Yes. Amen. Uh, we might do that every week. That's a good time. That's a good time. Hopefully it'll get you expected and excited. Maybe shake the little, little, maybe boredom or whatever it is you got in you right now. The stiffness, you know, I'm at church. I have to behave right. No, we're not doing that. Uh, I prefer for you to be crazy, okay? Within reason, within reason, within reason. Um, so uh, uh, that's what we're after this week. Now, on a serious note, I, when I was there, I noticed a couple things about uh, teenagers and about the ministry there and really some things we could learn as adults. I kept saying, like, it's been so interesting working with you guys. I haven't worked with teenagers in a while uh, now that I've been a pastor of a, a congregation working mainly with adults. Uh, but I noticed a few things, and I thought we needed to bring these back and apply them to our setting or just be reminded that these are things to pursue the ingredients of God working in amazing ways like he did. The first was a vulnerable and authentic uh, life. A vulnerable and authentic life. Uh, they would be honest quickly about the things that they were struggling with. There was a lack of pretense, a lack of trying to be something that they're not. Obviously, everybody struggles with this, but there was a real sense of authenticity, vulnerability, uh, proper assessment of where they are at spiritually, and a willingness to talk about it. Uh, there was a, I mean, this would happen multiple times. I met a kid once. And uh, the first time I met him, we started talking. He was like, yeah, last month I was just like on acid. I was sleeping with my girlfriend, all these things. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just met you, like right now, like right now. I can't even remember your name. I don't even remember what your name is. Uh, And that was an extreme example. But the kids would be so open, and I thought, man, it's a good reminder to us in your lighthouses and your Christian community that vulnerable and authenticity will make uh, really productive times together with the word of God. The second thing I noticed was a genuine hunger for, for the Lord, a zeal for God, that let's go spirit that I think sometimes as adults we try to squish down a little bit so we can be more presentable, less crazy. Uh, and I think the Lord is calling many of us back into that, that zeal, the hunger, the fire for God. Third thing I saw was a real commitment to one another and to community uh, in an authentic, vulnerable way. Um, they were truly committed to each other, to their growth past camp. Uh, it was an amazing thing to see, and I think I see that often in City Light as well, just an encouragement in your lighthouses and in your community. If you're not in a lighthouse, this is the way we build communities like this. The fourth thing was just focus, a distraction-free environment. They didn't have phones. And it's no accident that there was an amazing amount of spiritual progress in a week where all you do is spend time with one another, having fun, reading the word of God, singing to Jesus, and listening to the word preached. It's not like a, I kept telling people, why did we see so much heart change in a week at camp? And some of you who grew up at camp, you know camp's so emotional, you're like, Ugh. why does that happen though? It's because we're not distracted. So what could happen if you were less distracted just in your regular week? How close could the Lord be to your heart? This is something I've been pursuing lately, and I think it is true for all of us. I think the more focused we are on spiritual things, the more we will experience them themselves. Uh, and so those are things I, I thought I learned while I was there. I wanted to pass it on to you. So who is Jesus? We're in our fifth week of our Who is Jesus series. Uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, answering this question and trying to assess who Jesus really is and also trying to destroy and get rid of the myths and the stereotypes and the misconceptions that you might have about who he is. Because some of you are responding to Jesus according to who he is not. And you're making decisions about Jesus and about you following him according to who he is not. 
And I want to take time during this whole series, not just to clarify who he is, and not just for those who don't know him yet, but for all of us, we have believed over time, whether you've been a Christian one year, zero, or 50 years, we all still have misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he's really like. And we constantly need to be corrected and refined in our understanding of him so that we respond to him appropriately. So that's what we're after. Today we're gonna see, oh, just a reminder too, uh, every, se- every sermon goes with a session in this book. Remember, this is a tool for you to use. If you are here and you're seeking Jesus, this is a great way for you to learn more about who Jesus is and for you to dive more into what the scriptures say about that for you to make up your mind. Remember, as we've been saying, uh, you can give uh, Jesus split time in two. The very least thing you can do is give him eight weeks to figure out whether he's important or not. All right, so don't dismiss that question. Uh, use this. This is also a great tool for you to use if you have a family or a friend uh, member to invite or to walk them through this question. Something we've been saying for those of you who do follow Jesus is during this series, I'm asking that you make one invitation and have one spiritual conversation to pray that God would bring about transformation. And so if one of you pursues one spiritual conversation, and one invitation to study the book, to come to church, whatever it might be, I think the Lord would really work through this series. And so take as many as you like. We have boxes overflowing. Take one, take 10, uh, use them in your own life, use them for your friends and for your family. So Mark chapter 11 is where we're gonna be at this morning. I'm gonna read the first 19 verses and we're gonna see really the heart of Jesus. We're answering the question today, what does Jesus care about? What does Jesus care about? What is he all about? So Mark 11, one through 19 says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Because they're gonna say that to you because you're stealing their donkey. Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. I just, you know, reading the Bible is fun if you think about what it is like to do these things, you know. They're not superheroes, these disciples. They're regular people. And Jesus is saying, go and, and like make it appear like you're stealing someone's donkey. And when they address you and it's super awkward, here's what you're going to say. That God needs it, you know. God told me to. You know, it's like, okay. Uh, obviously, Jesus had it all planned out. But the disciples don't know that. They're normal like you and me. What an awkward thing to do. And so... They went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they started untying it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Which is what you ask when somebody's stealing something that you have. And they told them what Jesus had said. So they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, con- the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went back to Bethany with the 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And this is the main passage we'll be focusing on the rest of our time. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. We'll stop there for now. In this passage, we see the heart of Jesus and what Jesus really cares about. We see the toughness and tenderness of Jesus. We see a very well-rounded Jesus. We see the priorities of Jesus. We see the reason why there's a house of God, which is gonna help us think through our house this morning. And so really we can answer two questions, not just one, which I hope are helpful. The first is who is Jesus? The second one also is what is the point of church? At its core essence, okay, not just what is the point of church? So who is Jesus? And then why do I come to church? Okay, these are two very important questions for everyone uh, to answer and to know. And so the first thing we see about Jesus, and this sentence is gonna kind of run through the rest of our time together, it's very important, is that Jesus did not come to establish the rules of a religion, but the road to a relationship with God. 
What does Jesus care about, essentially? What did Jesus come to do, essentially? What was the core of his purpose? It is not to establish the rules of a religion, but the road to a relationship with God. Now, of course, in Christianity and from the Bible, there are rules. There are ways you ought to live, things you should do and not do. And God cares very much about the way that you live. But you cannot get into heaven by following the rules. You cannot. It is impossible. You cannot get into heaven by following God's rules or anyone else's rules. You simply cannot get into heaven by following the rules. And so Jesus did not come to establish a list of rules for you to follow, not do well at, and then be condemned forever because you missed the mark. Jesus came to show you what the rules are, say, well, you can't do it, and so here's the road to a relationship with God. This is Jesus' core purpose and what he is after. And Jesus came to make a way because there is no other way to have a relationship with God. Jesus' primary concern is the status of your relationship with God. Jesus' primary desire is that you would interact with God in a relationship with him. Jesus cares first and foremost about the relationship that he wants you to have with God, with himself. And that's what he came to establish and to live out. And this is what we ought to know about our interaction with him and who he is and what he wants for us. So just to give you some context, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, starting in Mark 11. Uh, this is basically the journey to the cross. So as soon as he enters into the city, he knows where he's going. He knows eventually what it's going to lead to. This is the final act uh, in the life of Jesus, at least here on earth, in flesh. And so he's headed towards the cross. As he prepares to go to the cross, we see the first part of the story. He gets on a colt or on a donkey, and he shows up, and people begin to worship him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him Savior. Hosanna means salvation now. They're looking to him as the Messiah, as the Savior of God. They're looking to him and worshiping him. Now, if Jesus was just a nice teacher or just a good guy with good advice, he'd say something like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not, I'm not here to do that, man. I'm just a man. But no, as we need to be confronted with continuing continually, Jesus receives their worship, accepts it as appropriate as worship unto God. And so he's not trying to convince anyone or help them think that he's just a nice teacher. We need to continue to get rid of the idea that Jesus is solely or primarily a nice teacher. Jesus receives worship as God. He accepts it. He does not rebuke it because he is God. And so now he continues. He goes straight to the temple. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, his main business that he has is going to go to the temple. He goes to the temple. Uh, he sees what's going on. He doesn't do anything yet. Because we all know not to act angry at nighttime, all right? We've all learned that. Don't go to bed like that. He wakes up the next day, and now he goes about his business. He has a plan. Now, many of you know what this is like to encounter something at night that makes you stay up and then wakes you up with some energy, right? You had a bad conversation with your spouse, and you woke up not feeling great about, about it. You woke up with some things to say, you know? You woke up with some things to do. You woke up. You had a bad phone call, and it just bothered you. You woke up feeling, who, you know? You watched something. You saw something. All of these times that we know what that feels like to say, man, I, I had a bad conversation with my friend. I saw something that did not sit well with me, and to sit on that all night and to wake up in the morning, I want you to sense what Jesus is feeling. He's feeling all, you know, he's not waking up like, oh, nice day, you know, in the presence of the Lord. No, he's waking up with some energy, and he's waking up with a little her in him, and he's ready to go to the temple. Now, as soon as he shows up at the temple, he immediately, without warning, begins to drive people out and flip tables over, which, assuming they were the money tables, as it says, means that there's money flying everywhere, which is the part of this story that I like to imagine. Jesus is just making it rain in this place by flipping tables, you know. He's going in there. Somebody needs to put him in a rap song, okay. He's flipping tables. He's making it rain. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't show up and say, oh, um, you guys are doing it wrong. This is not good. No, he shows up angry, and he shows up and starts to literally destroy property, and he's really taken names, and he's given them the business. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, as we begin to see this and the crazy scene that's taking place, it even says that he stopped people from carrying anything through. So not only did he throw things everywhere and make a complete mess, but now he stops people from doing what they came there to do. Everything is at a standstill because of Jesus and what he has just shown up to do. And something you must understand, this is very important from this, is that Jesus is not soft. 
He is kind, he is compassionate, he is merciful and gracious, he is loving, and he wants to be intimate and close to you, but he is not soft. This is when the perceptions of Gandhi Jesus, as we talked about, homeboy Jesus, nice teacher Jesus, GQ, good-looking movie star Jesus, all of those Jesuses, what's something, you, what's something the same about all of them? That they are very approachable. They're not intimidating. They're just nice. Nice to listen to, nice to look at. And that misconception of Jesus has seeped into us so that we don't approach Jesus with the kind of reverence that is due to him. And I wonder, I wonder if those of you in this room have accounted for flipping tables Jesus? Have you understood and dealt with righteously angry, destroying property Jesus? Is that a Jesus you have encountered and understood? A Jesus of judgment? A Jesus that is angry with the way that you live? A Jesus that is angry with the way that you do religion? A Jesus that is angry with the way that you're, with the condition of your heart? Have you left room for or even dealt with that kind of Jesus? Or are you only about nice teacher, soft, makes me feel better about myself, non-intimidating Jesus? Because that one doesn't exist. We must be confronted by the real Jesus this morning. I hear so many preachers say something that drives me absolutely nuts. They'll say something like this, God is not angry at you. God is not mad at you. Well, what if he is? What if he is angry at your sin? What if all of your religious activity and good deeds can't cover up your sin? What if your sin and my sin, even the smallest bits of it, is an offense to a holy God? What if God looks at your life and gets angry? Have you dealt with that, God? Have you considered that God is mad at you, that God has wrath against you, and that God is angry even with the way you come to church? Have you considered that if God showed up, he would flip your table over? Have you dealt and left room for this God? Have you dealt with him as who he is, as God who is righteously angry with sin and with the things that we do, and that our religious activity cannot cover up our hearts? And this Jesus, who has every right to be angry, sees everything. Everything you've ever said, he's heard it. Everything you've ever thought, he knows it. Everything you've ever felt, he's seen it. What if Jesus is righteously angry with you? Have you considered the predicament that that puts you in? What do you do if God is mad at you? What do you do if your sin is an offense to a holy God? What do you do if following the rules and coming to church and being religious doesn't make God any happier with you? What do you do? Have you considered this Jesus? You need to understand what this is like to receive the good gift of Jesus' salvation. Now, in that backdrop of God being angry with sin and even our religion not covering up our hearts, not only does Jesus know the problem, but Jesus is the solution. So he sees the problem, and he knows your problem, and he doesn't say, fix it, get better, do your religion better. No, Jesus says, you can't. It's impossible for you. And so that's why Jesus comes. He comes not to establish the rules of a religion, but to open the road to God, so that through his death, all your sins would be paid for. Through his resurrection, you could have a new life in his name. And so Jesus shows up, and he says, you got a problem. You don't need good advice. You need a rescue. And if you come to Jesus for good advice or you enter into Christianity because it seems nice, you've missed the whole point. You can't receive rescue until you know that you need it. You can't receive grace until you understand your sin. Jesus won't look pleasant to you and understand, until you understand how mad he is at your sin. And to gloss over or try to act like it's not a big deal or to think Jesus only wants you to feel good about yourself is to completely miss the hope and the grace that Jesus wants to give you in the midst of your sin. Have you dealt with flipping tables Jesus? Have you encountered a God who is angry? Have you dealt with him as such? Because you cannot receive a rescue from him until you recognize your need for him. You cannot receive a rescue 
from him until you recognize your need for him. And he did not come to give you good advice or to make you feel better about yourself. He came to save you from your sin. Have you encountered that, Jesus? Some of you in your relationship with God always want Jesus to make you feel better about yourself. Like Jesus is some sort of self-esteem guru. Like Jesus exists to make the things you feel bad about and are ashamed of feel better about. Like Jesus exists to make you feel better about yourself. Let me, under, let me help you understand something that you may have misconceived. Jesus, it is not God's goal to build your self-esteem. It is God's goal to build your God-esteem. God is not concerned with making you feel better about yourself, but God is concerned with giving you a higher view of God. And now hear me understand, when you begin to fix your eyes on him and who he is, and the greater you grow in who he is and what he has said, then you become secure in who you are because it's not about who you are, but what he has said about you. It's not about how good you can be, but how perfect he is. Do you understand that? In your attempts to love yourself, you are weakening yourself. You know how you love yourself, but you receive God's love for you. You know how to think highly of yourself is to think highly of God and then to know he values me. We're doing it all wrong. You're doing it backwards. So many of you in your Christian life, you think it's God's goal to make you feel better about yourself. That is not his goal. His goal is not to build your self-esteem, but God-esteem. And in you seeing who he is, you will become more secure in who you are. This is how it works. The point, hear me, is not to feel better about yourself by thinking less of your sin or thinking that it doesn't matter that much, but to think more highly of his grace, which applies even to the worst of, his, of your sin. You see that? You don't feel better about yourself by looking at the things about yourself and saying, oh, that's not too bad, not too bad. No, no, no. You feel better about yourself by looking at them, confronting them, that's wicked and that's awful and I can't believe that's who I am, and then looking to him and him saying, I love you anyways. You see how it works? And we're so busy trying to build up our self-esteem, even as Christians. And this is not God's intent. God wants to build up your God-esteem so that you honor and love him. But in having a higher view of God and in believing what God says, then you will have a higher view of yourself. The best way to love yourself is to let God love you. Do you believe that? The best way to love yourself is to let God love you. Stop being so, current, so concerned with your self-esteem. Start joining God and building up your God-esteem, and you will be surprised over time how you come to feel about yourself. The security and the identity and the assurance you have in who you are will never come from you getting better at the things that you're good at, for you to stop doing the things that you're bad at, for you to be impressive in strength and wisdom, for you to have money and reputation. Those things will never make you feel better about yourself. Truly. And the more you pursue those things to build your self-esteem, you will only go deeper and deeper and deeper into a ditch. But the more you give God glory and fix your eyes on him, and you hear him call you daughter and son, then you become secure and strong and wise. Are you doing it backwards? Listen to me. Some of you are running away from things that you are ashamed of, and running away from them is keeping you from receiving God's grace for them. You won't deal with it, so you can't receive grace for it. You won't confront it, so you can't receive the calling of God in it. You're running from something, from yourself, from your past, from your mistakes, from your regret, from the things that you don't like about yourself, from the things you wish you never did, from the things you wish that never had happened to you. You are running away, running away. But the point is not just to run away from the things that bother you, that you regret, and that, you mis that were mistakes of your life and the problems of your past. The thing is not to run away from those things, but to run to the cross. You see what I'm saying? And some of you are so busy running away, running away from your past, away from your sin, away from your shame, away from the things that make you feel weak, away from the things that make you feel invaluable, away from the things that bother you about yourself, away from your regrets. You're running away, running away, running away, but you're never running to the cross. 
And so you just spend your whole life running around. You're just running around, running around, running around. You're trying to run away from things, but you're not running to the cross. And the goal is not to say, my sin isn't so bad. The goal is to say, yeah, it's pretty bad. And I just run straight to the cross where I find my solution. You run to the cross. Are you running to the cross? Or are you running away from your problems? Are you running to the cross? Are you running away from your mistakes? Are you running to the cross? Are you spending all your time running around, running around, running around? And that's why even as a Christian, you walked in here tired because you haven't gone to the cross. That's where you receive the grace of God. That's where the love of God begins to touch your heart. That's where the forgiveness of God washes over you. God doesn't say what you did was okay. He says what you did was horrible, but I paid for it. And my blood covers your sin. Are you running away or are you running to the cross? You'll never run to the cross if you don't think you need it. If you're trying to build your self-esteem, you don't go to the cross because the cross reminds you of how wicked your sin is. If you're trying to feel better about yourself, you don't go to the cross. But if you need a savior and you need some rescue and you need the love and the grace of God, then run to the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus died for you. On the cross, the problem became the solution. And Jesus bore the weight of all your sin, all your mistakes, all your regrets, everything you've done to offend him and others, everything that you've said, thought, or felt that was wrong and against him. Jesus took all of it and he paid for it on the cross. And if you run to the cross, you will experience forgiveness, love, and a new life. Are you running away from your problems or are you running to the cross? Now, Jesus, he has everyone's attention continuing in the story here. It's very quiet. I think everybody's looking at him. I mean, imagine if you just got up and started flipping chairs over. Before somebody escorted you out of the building, we'd all look at you. Be like, what in the world? Nobody would be looking at me anymore. So this is what's happening. Jesus walks in. There's a lot of activity. But one person has just gone nuts. And so everybody's watching it. If they had iPhones, everybody would be videotaping that. It would be viral, okay? This is it's crazy. So now Jesus has all of their attention. Imagine. They're like, what is he going to say to us, you know? And as far as we know, he says one sentence. He probably said more, but it's just not recorded. So this is obviously the main thing that he said at least. He has all their attention, this very tense, awkward moment. He looks at everyone and he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus in this moment is quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, which shows us that God has always felt this way about his house. This is not something new with Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus did not come to establish the rules of a religion, but the road to a relationship with God. Now, here's where we begin to answer the question, what's the point of church? The house of God exists to facilitate the purpose of Jesus, which is to open the road to a relationship with God. Why does the house of God exist? Not to facilitate religious activity, but to facilitate a relationship with God. This is why the house of God exists. Now, since the resurrection of Jesus, after the physical temple days, the temple is no longer a physical building, but the temple is now, by the scriptures, a group of people gathered together in Jesus' name. The house of God is the people of God, and this gets felt and seen when the people of God gather together into a local assembly like what we're doing right now. This is why the local church is so very important to experiencing the power and the presence of God, because this is where God's people, this is where God's presence dwells within his people. Ephesians 2 says it this way, 19 and 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is an amazing passage. God's people are God's dwelling place 
Therefore, when God's people gather together, there should be a manifestation, a tangible experience of God's presence. This is what the church is supposed to experience when they gather together. And this gathering is so powerful and the presence of God is so tangible and real that even when someone walks into the gathering apart from God who doesn't know God, they immediately recognize that something supernatural is taking place. Look in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, which is what we've just talked about, called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Which maybe is happening for some of you now. That's a good thing. And so, falling on his face, get this, he will worship God, and what will he say? Oh, this is good. And he will declare that God really is among you. What is the mark of the gathering of God's people? It's God's presence. It's that God is here, and I know it. I can feel it. He's here with us in this place. And it's not that this building makes it special or anything like that, but it's that we have gathered together in the name of Jesus. We come together each as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we join together, something supernatural happens that doesn't happen when we're by ourselves, that the manifest, tangible, experiential presence of God gets realized in a physical place. You see what I'm saying? We didn't come here for a good sermon. We didn't come here for good songs. We didn't come here for good coffee. We came here for an experience of God himself. You don't need a good sermon. You need Jesus. You don't need good songs. You need Jesus. You don't need good coffee. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And what happens when we come together is Jesus says, I'm here. So why do we sing a song like, the atmosphere is changing all over? What does that mean? It sounds so ambiguous. This is what that means, is that when we gather together, something supernatural begins to take place. And the place where God's people gather become, becomes a manifest place where God reveals himself. So what are you expecting when you come to church? What is your goal? What is your aim? What are you participating in? I'll give my life for this, that when we gather together, it is known to everyone that God is among us. And I, at least as your pastor now, will settle for nothing less than an experience of God's presence with us. And that'll certainly mean at times that you might be uncomfortable. That'll certainly mean at times that God is calling you to do things you're not used to doing in church. But at the very least, it means that you have an expectation that I did not come to church to go through the motions or to listen to a nice sermon or to meet some good friends. I came here for a tangible, real, emotional, felt, experienced relationship with God. And there's something about when God's people gather together that gives me more access to that than by myself. Here's a little theology for you. The you in the New Testament is always plural. There's no distinction. Plural. You is always all y'all. So how do you experience everything there? It's when it's us gathered together. Now, obviously, your time with the Lord, the Spirit lives in you. That's amazing, and it's beautiful, and you should be intimate with God in your own house. But there's something supernatural that happens when God's people gather together, and I want us to have an expectation for that. The call of God is not to be busy with religious activity, but to have intimacy with him. We don't come here to be busy. We don't come here to even be productive. We come here for him. And you should come here for him. And you should beg the Lord that he would reveal himself to you. We're so scared of our emotions, we're so scared of our feelings that we settle for not feeling anything, and that's unacceptable. Certainly feelings come and go. Certainly we have sin in our life that keeps us from fully experiencing this to a greater degree. Certainly there are things to work through. This will never be experienced perfectly, but the goal is there. Is that when we come here, we should feel the presence of God with us. And it should be so obvious that an unbeliever can walk in here and get smacked in the face with it. This is what the Bible says. This is not Nate's version of church. 
This is what we're after. What is the point of church? It, church facilitates a relationship with God. So, this is why we try to pray a lot around here. This is why we build a house of prayer. Every Thursday night at 6.30, we gather to sing and to pray. There's no other agenda. I, I invite you to join us. It's just us with the Lord, with the word of God, with God's people. On Sundays, 9.15 to 10.30, a group prays for an hour. Uh, together, we have times throughout the week. Uh, we took a August off to give our team a break, but in September, we're re-upping our house of prayer hours during the day and during the morning so that you can come join us. Uh, and pursue the presence of God together during the week. This is a high priority for us because it's a high priority to God. He did not say my house will be a house of preaching, a house of music, a house of friendship. He said it'd be a house of prayer. And if that's Jesus' main point of being a church, it ought to be ours. And so that's what we will be. So a few questions for you now to evaluate whether your uh, worship and your participation is according to what Jesus would expect or does Jesus need to come in here and flip your table, so to speak? Here are five questions. Number one, is your worship defined by religious activity or relational intimacy? Just the mark of it. Now, once again, religion is not bad. I don't like it when people are like, religion is bad, relationship is the only good thing. Oh, no, there's things we ought to do. It's just relationship is the essence of religion. The Bible says true religion is this, take care of orphans and widows. Religion is not a bad word, and we shouldn't treat it as such. But is your worship defined by religious activity, what you do, or is it defined by relational intimacy, who you love? When you come, do you more focus on what you're doing? Is your life defined by your religious activity? If somebody asks you, what is it like to be a Christian, the first thing you said is, I do, you've already missed it. So evaluate, is your worship defined by religious activity, like in the temple, busyness, without being connected to the meaning of it, or relational intimacy? The second thing, are you going through the motions without being connected to the meaning? Once again, they were doing sacrifices like they were told to do. That's not bad. That's a good thing. You come in here, you sit under the word of God. You're worshiping, you're singing, you're being friendly with one another. These are good things. We are told to do these things. We ought to practice them. We ought to be disciplined and diligent in our practice of these things. We're not just running by the seat of our pants or just feeling things all the time. We need to be committed to these things. But at the same time, evaluate your heart. Are you just going through the motions without being connected to the meaning? Do you desire and seek a manifest presence of God? Do you want to grow in your relationship with him while you're here? Do you expect Jesus to show up and meet with you? Or are you just going through the motions? Number three, do you experience more transfer of information or transformation? These are just evaluation questions for you to consider where your heart is at in terms of your worship. This is especially for those of you who would identify as Christians. Do you experience more transfer of information or transformation? When you're with God's people, when you're gathered in a lighthouse or here or wherever, do you experience more transfer of information, i.e. I learned something new only, or transformation, I am something new? Number four, this one drives me nuts. Do you look for excellence or reverence? Let me tell you something. I've been in church long enough to know that excellence is an idol. Excellence is an idol. God does not want your most professional self. He wants your best self, most all of you. Now listen, once again, everything needs a caveat. Do we try our very best to do things the very best we can do? Yeah, there's a reason why I'm not playing a guitar and singing, okay? There's a good reason for that. It would not be excellent. It would not help you. There's a reason why I preach, okay? That's what God has told me and gifted me to do. There's a reason why I spend time during the week preparing the sermon. I don't just get up here, okay? I try to do it excellently. We have people like DDA. They do it excellently. Our team does it excellently. At every level, we want people to do things well. We're not saying the goal is to be sloppy, but when you come in here and you evaluate a service, are you looking for excellence or reverence? What if the coffee was cold, but there was a manifest feeling of the fear of God? And everyone agreed upon this to say, man, we really sense our sin and God is here and he's revealing things to us. We need him. Do you look for reverence in the worship? Do you look for reverence or just looking for, do you look for excellence in a sermon? Are you evaluating whether it's good or bad? Or are you looking for reverence in whether you're hearing true things about Jesus? You see what I'm saying? These are just, you need to think them through because excellence isn't bad, but if you come in here and you prioritize excellence over reverence, you have missed the whole point. God wants reverence, reverence. 
And as we pursue reverence, we try to do so with excellence. Number five, are you focused on the presence of Christ or the productivity of Christians? Once again, is it about how well things are going while you're here and what your experience is like? Or is it about seeking the presence of Christ in the song, hearing from Jesus in the sermon, setting your thoughts and attentions on Jesus, being intentional to get your heart ready for Jesus? Are you focused on the presence of Christ or the productivity of Christians? These are five questions that at least I have been asking myself to help navigate whether Jesus needs to flip my table or not and whether he needs to flip yours. You ought to think them through and evaluate your current heart and the status of your heart and how your worship is going with him. So, as we close, Jesus not only says this should be a house of prayer and he prioritizes a relationship, but he says it should be a house of prayer for all nations. It's a house of prayer for everybody. This is a relationship with God offered to everyone. And the whole point of the temple was not just to allow the Jews to worship God, but to give access to the whole world. That's the point. What's the point of God's temple now? God's people gathered together, not just that we would come and worship him, but that we would gather together and provide an access point for people who don't know him to come worship him. It's a church gathering for all people. It's the body of Christ for all nations, that all languages and all peoples from all places would know that God wants a relationship with them. And maybe that's you here this morning. You say, man, I didn't even know that God's priority was a relationship with me. Listen to me. The road to a relationship with God is open to anyone who would follow Jesus. You want to know what Jesus, what made Jesus so mad about the temple, what made Jesus so mad about the religious activity was that the only place where the Gentiles could go worship was noisy and busy. And the very thing that they needed to do in that place, they were restricted from doing. They couldn't encounter the presence of God, too busy. They couldn't encounter the word of God, nobody listening. They couldn't deal with their sin. They're just paying sacrifices back and forth. They're not meeting with him. And Jesus is angry because it's preventing people from coming to him. And it's preventing you from coming to him. And I want with all my heart, and Jesus wants, is what you have to hear. You're watching online, you're watching this four weeks from now, you're going through, who is Jesus? Whatever the situation is, is that Jesus wants a relationship with you, and he gets angry when anything gets in the way. This is what he's after. Why did he bring you here this morning? To open the road so that you may have a relationship with God. Why does Jesus want our worship to be true and sincere? Not just for us unto him, but so that when people come, the road would be open to a relationship with God. God forbid that we who call ourselves Christians would somehow be roadblocks to this road. God forbid that we would get in the way that our religious activity would crowd out the voice of God. Man, we ought to repent, those of us who follow him, to say, man, I have not approached you the right way, and I've been going about church sometimes the wrong way, and I apologize if I've ever been a roadblock to people coming to Jesus. I don't want that to be the case. So I say, I'm sorry. Would you make me an open road? I would love the presence of God. I would worship Jesus for who he is and not the quality of the program that I'm in. You know, what else the temple teaches us is that no amount of activity can make you right with God can buy and sell all the sacrifices you want. You can give away all your money to the poor. You can be born in a religious setting and in a religious family. These things cannot make you right with God. You can go to church every day. You can do everything you're supposed to do. You can even tithe to the church. You can serve and be a part of a church. You can try to be as good a person as you can. You can avoid doing really bad things. But none of these things can make you right with God. Jesus did not come to verify the rules and say, follow the rules. He came to open the road and say, follow me. So are you following him this morning? Do you walk into this room a follower of Jesus? He's inviting you this morning, speaking to your heart, because God is amongst us here to say, follow me. Stop running away from your problems. Stop running away from your mistakes. Stop running away from your regrets. Stop running around and run to the cross this morning. 
would you do that? He is calling you. He is calling you. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, may our gatherings be marked by his presence. A real, tangible experience that God is amongst us. And may we pursue that together. Let me pray and let's respond to him. ask you to go ahead and stand up. I want you to stand up where you are. I want you to consider what God is saying to you. When is he calling you now? Get rid of the noise and the busyness and in the stillness of this moment, listen to what he is speaking to you. I'm going to give you a minute of just quietness before him. Listen to him. consider what Jesus is saying to you. If you are here this morning, as you continue to listen to him and God is calling you and he's hitting at your heart, Revelation says, behold, I knock at the door. And he's knocking at your heart and saying, follow me. Would you come? Would you be willing to come down and say, yes, that's me this morning? So I'm gonna give you a moment. If you would like to come and just come and say, that's me. God is knocking on the door. I've been running away, but I run to the cross now. Would you come? Don't be afraid of what people think. If you're here today and you say, I I need to run to the cross. I'm already a follower of Jesus, but I'm going to run. I'm going to run to the cross. I want you to come. I want you to come down front. We're, We're done going through the motions and playing games with God and trying to pretend like we're something that we're not. So the altar is open, and I'm asking you to come and run straight to the cross and receive at the cross everything God has wanting to give and to take a public step of faith and to act on it and to come. And so as I pray, would you consider coming, coming to Jesus, running to the cross? Heavenly Father, Lord, now we love you. God, I pray that you would prompt your people to respond to you, Lord. We need Jesus. We need your word. We need your presence. We need your spirit. Don't let any of us, God, just go through the motions and end the service, Lord. Don't let any of us miss out on the very thing you're trying to do in our life. We submit to you now, Lord. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be down front if you need prayer. Let's respond to Jesus now.